Psalm 11. And here's what David writes. David is on the run. I'm not quite sure of the context, but he's uh, perhaps a, a couple times he was on the run as a refuge in his life, uh, certainly from King Saul and also um, from his son Absalom. And, uh, you know, we read about these uh, characters in the Bible, and sometimes we put them up on a pedestal. Um, David spent at least a decade of his life as a refuge on, on the run. And uh, so he writes Psalm chapter 11. Somewhere during that time period, here's what he writes, In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows, they set their arrows against the strings, to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Let's, uh, let's pray this morning and we'll uh, look in at this um, psalm. Lord, thank you for um, the privilege we have to be here this morning to worship you. Lord, we thank you for the United States of America and the, the freedom we have to worship and assemble. And we recognize there are many places around the world that uh, cannot uh, freely worship like we are today. So we thank you for that. And Lord, we do pray for our, our nation today. Lord, we turn, pray for a, a turning back to you. And we pray for uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris. And uh, we pray for our uh, state leaders and our local leaders. Lord, would you bless them? Would you guide them? Lord, we ask that you would look to them for guidance. And Lord, as we uh, examine your word today, we pray that uh, your spirit would speak to us and that uh, our lives would be changed because we've been here today. In Jesus' name, amen. A little preview here. What's going to happen is that you're probably going to be a little uh, discouraged and depressed about the first 15 minutes into our uh, message this morning. But what I want to do, then we're going to finish up with Psalm 11, and hopefully we will be encouraged and have some hope. So some good things that are coming and when we look at the Psalm chapter 11. Um, I think we would all realize today, and I was thinking about this earlier you know, I grew up in the 1960s. The America that I grew up in is no longer around. The America, I mean, if you're over over 40, the America that you grew up in it doesn't exist anymore. And so we want to kind of just talk about the, the moral and spiritual decline. Um, here's what uh, Alexis Tocqueville, a French socialist, he came to America for several months in the 1830s, and America was relatively new. It was a great nation, and he wanted to discover what makes America great. Here's what he wrote. In her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. In democratic Congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. And then here's this famous statement. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. 
Well, America's spiritual and moral decline. I don't have to tell you this, but just a reminder, we, we've drifted far away from the, the uh, fundamental principles that our nation was founded on. Uh, Supreme Court decisions that have uh, drifted away from, from God's uh, moral law, kicked prayer out of school, can't read the Bible in schools, post the Ten Commandments, um, the Roe v. Wade decision, which, which has been overturned, and now it's left up to the states, and, and on and on we can go. Uh, America's public education system has drifted a long way from where it used to be. Here's Will Kroll years ago. The McGuffey Readers. Anybody familiar with McGuffey Readers? Textbook of the 19th century, the McGuffey Reader, was unapologetically biblical in its orientation. This is what they taught the kids in school. One-third of the McGuffey Readers in 1837 contained religious readings. Here's one of the lessons from the McGuffey Readers. So this is what they taught in school in the 1830s, 18. And, and actually until about the 1930s, um, uh, when they began to drift away. Uh, some of these are still used, though, in, in homeschooling and, and some Christian schools. Here's Lesson 20. It's entitled John Jones. John Jones was a good boy, but he could not read or write. His mother was poor. She could not pay for him to go to school. So she sent him out to help a man at the side of the road to break stones. John could not earn much, it is true, yet it was good for him to be at work. It is well for us all to have work to do. It is not bad for us. It is bad for us not to work. John was a good boy, and he did not love to play so much that he could not work. The man for whom John worked was very kind to John and gave him a great deal of good advice. One day he said to him, John, you must always bear in mind that it was God who made you and who gave you all that you have. And all that you hope for, he gave you life, food, and a home. All who take care of you and help you were sent by God. He sent his son to show you his will and to die for your sake. This is, in, this is what they read in the public schools. He gave you his word to let you know what he has done for you and what he wants you to do. Be sure that he sees you in the dark as well as in the daylight. He can tell all that you do and all that you say and all that is in your mind. Oh, ever seek this God. Pray to him when you rise and when you lie down. Keep his day, hear his word, and do his will, and he will love you and he will be your God forever. Well, they're not reading that in our schools anymore, are they? <laughs> that, was, uh, that was the McGuffey reader. And again, I'm going to quote uh, Woodrow Kroll, his book, to the Bible. He wrote this about 20 years ago. His introduction is entitled, The World's Best-Selling Coffee Table Book. And he's referring to the Bible. You would expect the Bible more than any other to be read and read regularly, but as a growing body of evidence attests, the Bible is the best-loved, never-read book of all time. It has become the world's most popular coffee table book. Even if it is carried consistently to church, it is picked up from the coffee table only to be returned there after Sunday lunch. Uh, here's the latest Gallup poll. Well, I don't know if it's the latest one, but it's from March 2021. Um, 
the article is entitled, American Church Attendance Hits Historic Low. So we've drifted away from the founding principles of America has been founded on. Our education system excludes God. Um, the Bible's not held in high esteem. And uh, here's the latest Gallup survey. For the first time in 80 years, Gallup has found that less than half of U.S. adults belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque. So um, U.S. church membership was 73% of population when Gallup poll first measured it in 1937. So first time they took this, 73% uh, belonged to some sort of church organization. And it remained near 70% for the next six decades before beginning a steady decline around the turn of the 21st century. Uh, Church membership dropped to 50% by 2018 and to 47% in 2021. So for the first time, less than than 50% in America is uh, connected to a church. Well... Uh, one other thought here, uh, just as we think about where is America today and uh, where are we culturally, this is Abdu Murray. Uh, he wrote a book entitled Saving Truth, Finding Meaning, Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. So we used to be described as postmodernism. Now they're telling us that the description of the American culture is post-truth, and we'll tell you what that means if um, you're not quite sure. Increasingly, Western culture embraces confusion as a virtue and decries certainty as a sin. Those who are confused about morality are progressive pioneers. Conversely, those who express certainty about any of these issues are seen as arrogant or intolerant. Uh, This cultural phenomenon led the compilers of the Oxford English Dictionary to name post-truth as their word of the year in 2016. According to the Oxford Dictionary, post-truth denotes emotion and personal beliefs. In other words, feelings and preferences matter more than facts and truth. This is different and more problematic than postmodernism where a postmodern person might say there is no objective truth, a post-truth person might think there is objective truth, but I don't care because my personal feelings and preferences matter more. Anyone who brings facts that challenge those feelings or preferences is labeled as a hater or something similarly derogatory. So where are we in a, as America today? Uh, probably where Judges 25, the book of Judges, ends like this. There was no king in Israel, and everybody did that which is right in their own eyes. And unfortunately, that, uh, that describes and this psalm that, that, that David wrote while he was on the run uh, as a refuge. Really, the, the answer to the question in the key verses is verse 3. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so as we sit here this, this morning and um, we bemoan the, the spiritual, moral drift in America, um, the psalmist asks the question, what can you do when the foundations of righteousness are destroyed? And so we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at some thoughts here from, uh, from the text um, here's, um, here's the first thing uh, that 
we need to do, and I think it's in the uh, outline in your bulletin this morning. Um, number one, make a declaration of dependence. Of independence that we're celebrating on the 4th of July, our independence from England. But we need to make a declaration of dependence, and that's where the psalmist starts in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. So David is either running from King Saul or perhaps his son Absalom who tried to overthrow him as the king of Israel. And David declares, my refuge is found in God. And that's what we need to make that declaration today. We that Our hope is not in the United States of America, as wonderful as our nation is. Our hope is not in our military strength. It's not in our money. It's not in mankind. Uh, our refuge is in God. Psalm 46, one. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And so, uh, where do we, where do we go for strength? Where do we go for, um, stability? Uh, we make a declaration of dependence. My hope and uh, the psalmist writes, the name of the Lord is a strong power. The rocks run into it and are safe. And so here's the first uh, thought that, uh, that David writes in Psalm 11.1. 1. He says, we need to make a declaration of dependence. That hope and strength is found in him. And uh, life is difficult. And Jesus uh, said in John sixteen thirty three, in this world you will have trouble. <laughs> he just put it out there. But the last part of the verse, uh, but take heart, be of good cheer. What does Jesus say? I've overcome the world. And so, so what does David do here? He he takes refuge in God. Uh, there were some that said, David, you just need to problems. And uh, one option is escapism when problems come. A lot of people look for ways to just bury their problems, escape from their problems, whether it's uh, alcohol, whether it's materialism. Um, we could, we could kind of stick our heads in the sand and not really want to know what's going on in the world today. Uh, but that's not the solution. And uh, David says, um, my refuge and my strength is found in, in God. Well, secondly, uh, what do we do when the foundations are being destroyed? Verse 4, remember that God is in his holy temple and on his heavenly throne. So David writes uh, just those exact words. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. Where, where is God today? God is seated at a throne in heaven. Jesus is at his right hand. We, we read that in, in, in Hebrews, that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father, symbolic that his work is complete. But uh, God is in heaven. And when things go spiraling out of control, whether it's in our personal lives or whether it's in the nation or whether it's in the world news, one of the things we need to constantly remind ourselves is that God's still on the throne. And his whole control. And God has already written the last chapter of human history. 
Uh, I went to a uh, a small private Christian school, and uh, back in uh, 1961, my dad was a pastor, and there was a couple other pastors in Cleveland, Ohio. And this is 60 years ago. They saw the need for Christian education. And so those three pastors um, got together, and they started a Christian school. And in 1961, there were 43 of us in the school. It was kindergarten through third grade. They didn't have any money. They found retired teachers who would come back and teach at that school, and I'm sure they got paid next to nothing. And uh, But they they believed in Christian education. And so each year, then they successively would um, add a grade until they made it all the way up to 12th grade. And um, I tell people I graduated in the top 25 of my class in high school. There's, there's 24 of us, I think. Um, so it was very small, but uh, one of the things I remember, uh, I don't know if you remember much from your high school days, my history teacher, she's still, still around today. She's in her, got to be in her late 80s, lives down in Cedarville, Ohio. Uh, Eleanor Taylor, where is her name? She taught us history is his story. She broke it up into two words. History is his story. God's writing a story of human history. And the last chapter's already been written. Uh, the book's been written. Revelation, and guess what? God, God wins, and, and we're with him forever and ever. Remember, um, nothing is surprising God uh, that he's still on the throne and that he has a plan and, and a purpose. Well, thirdly, uh, what do we do when uh, we see our, our foundations of our nation crumbling uh, remember that God knows all and sees all. And this kind of fits in with the, the previous point, but that's the last part of verse 4. He observes everything on earth. His eyes examine them. So the psalmist says, God knows what's going on in our world, in our nation, um, in our families, and in our lives. He all. All. In fact, uh, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 139. Here's what God knows. David writes, You've searched me, God, and you know me. What's God know about us? You know when I sit and when I rise. God knows when you sit down. God knows when you stand up. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Now that's that can be a little intimidating, can it? That God knows what we're thinking. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it, Lord, completely. God knows everything about us. Uh, he knows everything about us. He knows everything about our world. And so we can take uh, some comfort in, in that. And uh, sometimes when life gets um, a little bit discouraging and, and when um, we're a little down, um, we can ask the question that uh, uh, Israel asked, Isaiah forty twenty seven, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Israel, why do you say God doesn't know what's going on in your life? And this uh, 
book of Isaiah goes on to talk about the fact that God knows everything that is going on in our life. And sometimes we think, well, God, if you know everything, why don't you do something? <laughs> That's the book of Habakkuk, by the way. Habakkuk was a prophet, and he was looking around at God's people, and, and uh, the nation of Israel was in uh, a great spiritual and moral decline. And Habakkuk asked the question, How long, Lord, how long before you do something and judge God's people? And God answered him and said to Habakkuk, the whole book's a dialogue. I am going to do something. I'm going to judge God's people. I'm going to use the the Babylonians, and they're going to come in and judge God's people. And now all of a sudden, Habakkuk has another problem, like, and if, if the level of God's people, wicked is, their wickedness is here, the Babylonians are here. They were the most ruthless people on the planet. And now Habakkuk has another question. How can you use a more wicked people to judge God's people? And um, that's where uh, he, Habakkuk 2.20 says, The Lord's in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent. God can do what he wants to do. And and uh, that's what happened. Uh, God's people got judged by the, the Babylonian Empire, came in and, and, and destroyed uh, God's people. Uh, but then God also said, by the way, I'm also going to judge uh, the Babylonians in my time. Um, so God knows and sees everything. Here's Hebrews 4.13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. All right, so um, God is on his throne. God's in his temple. God sees and knows everything. Uh, Here's a fourth truth that can hopefully encourage us. Remember that justice will ultimately prevail. Justice will alter character traits, attributes of God, is that God is just. Um, Genesis 18.25, and it's the conversation with Abraham, and he's trying to intercede uh, on behalf of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the wickedness there, and he's asking God, uh, you know, would you save the city for 50 righteous people? And God says, yes. And then he goes down to 45. And finally, he says, if there's 10 righteous people, will you save the city? And God said, yes. But in Genesis 18.25, we read, will not the judge of all the earth do right? In other words, we can trust justice to God. Sometimes justice happens um, while we're here on uh, planet Earth. But even if it doesn't happen here, ultimately, justice will prevail because God is a righteous judge. And there's a day coming when um, everyone will be judged. And this is uh, the great white throne judgment. This is the judgment you don't want to be at. This is for unbelievers in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 12, talks about the great white throne, um, the earth uh, and the heavens fled from God's presence 
I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The, ju- the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Ah, so God's, God's got a record of what people have done. And uh, they will have to give an account at the great white throne judgment, and God will, will, will judge them. Many people believe that there are different levels of punishment in, in a place called hell, which if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's your eternal destination. Uh, just as in heaven, there's the different levels of reward and responsibilities to, that God will dole out to us based on our faithfulness here. So ultimately, justice will prevail. Um, Let me read uh, from Psalm 11. I don't think I read the the verses here that I wanted to. Psalm 11, verses 5 through 7. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice, and the upright will see his. So when we look around and we see our world uh, and our, more specifically, our, our nation, uh, the foundation is crumbling. What, what can we do? Uh, we need to make a declaration of dependence. God is our refuge. God is our strength. We need to be reminded that he's in control even when the world and our country seems out of control that sovereign reminded that he sees all and knows that ultimately justice will prevail. There's one more thing I think we can do. What can we do when the foundations are being destroyed and uh, I want to just close with that um, familiar passage from Second Chronicles chapter 7. And the context there is that Solomon is dedicating the temple. And so it's a, it's a, glorious, a glorious situation, a time of great celebration. But in Second Chronicles 7.11, it says, When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all that he had in mind to do in the temple and his own palace... The Lord appeared to him at night. And so right after the temple was dedicated, God appears to Solomon in a dream. He says to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. But then this is Second Chronicles 7.13. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people. So Deuteronomy is a key passage to the the Old Testament. God says, if you bless me, or obey me rather, you will enjoy these blessings. If you disobey me, um, and this is about two-thirds of the rest of Deuteronomy 28, all these um, difficult things and curses and plagues are going to come on you. And so God is kind of looking into the future and knows that God's people are going to drift far from God. And so he says, hey, when when the plagues come and the locusts come and there's no rain because of God's judgment, there's something I want you to do. And it's that familiar verse, 
In 2 Chronicles 7.14, we read, If my people, Christians, followers of God, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. So there's one more thing that we can do. We can recognize that God's in control and that he sees all and we can make our statement of declaration of God is our refuge and strength. And we can also acknowledge that justice will be done. Whatever, whatever injustices are done on this world, in this world during our lifetime here, they will be made right. But there's one other thing that we can do and that is God says we need to pray. Humble ourselves. Seek God's face, repent of sin, and pray. And so um, I think that would be a great way to kind of conclude this morning. Um, Why don't we just take a a few moments here, and uh, uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll just pause for a minute or two, and if God lays it on your heart... um, Anybody here, young, old, male, female, if you just want to pray and ask God to bless our nation and pray for our nation, um, I hope some of you will do that. And then, then I'll close in, in prayer. So would you, would you uh, join me in praying? And Lord, we thank you that, um, that you've given us some instructions of what we can do when um, the foundations of our country are crumbling and we're so fallen so far from the moral and spiritual foundations of our country. And so, Lord, we do pray for the United States of America today. And uh, we agree with uh, Tocqueville when he said that... uh, the greatness of America is because America is good. And when America ceases to be good, America ceases to be great. Lord, we thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy. But we do know that our, our world and our culture is uh, deteriorating rapidly from you. Lord, we pray, humbly pray, that uh, you would help us to be the salt and the light of the world. Help us to learn to speak the truth in love. And Lord, we pray that um, there would be a a turning back to you. Lord, may it start in our individual lives. And uh, Lord, we um, thank you that we can uh, intercede on behalf of our nation, our leaders, and our country today. And Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. 